Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Hallelujah. Fought the fight, the battle won. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Death in vain forbids him rise. Hallelujah. Christ has opened paradise. Hallelujah. Hail the Lord of earth and heaven. Hallelujah. Praise to thee by both be given. Hallelujah. Thee we greet triumphant now. Hallelujah. Hail the resurrection thou. Hallelujah. Amen. And if we were in an Anglican church today, I would say to you, he is risen, and you would say, He is risen indeed. He is risen. Amen. Good, okay. Owen will come back and we'll all have turned to Anglican. (laughs) No, we won't. And he's back next week. Whoa, where have those four months gone? So it'd be great to welcome him and Pauline back. I know he is really looking forward to being back and to seeing the church, being part of the family again. I think they've missed that, so it'll be great to welcome him back next week. We're giving him a week off, so he's not going to preach his first week back. Um, so we've got the, the, the delight of Josh and Ruth next week, who are going to just begin to prepare us a bit more for our weekend away, and are going to speak about redemption. So um, I, I don't know what you feel about WhatsApp. I mean, I quite like it. Do you like it? Yeah. Um, but I've decided it's a bit of a mixed blessing. So this week... I'm watching WhatsApp, and there's a few people just using WhatsApp to, to just let us know that there's a couple of gaps in the rotors this week, and, oh, I can't do creche, and I, I'm not around for communion, and, and this sort of thing. And then I'm watching the responses coming back. Oh, I'd love to help, but I'm away. Oh, I'm going to visit my family. Oh, I don't, I think, oh. The week goes on, and more and more people are saying, oh, I'm not going to be around. So I wasn't that much of a fan of WhatsApp this week. <laughs> Um, But then I read this article yesterday and I was really encouraged by reading about this guy called Charles Simeon. And there he is, uh, lived in the 1700s through into the 1800s. And Charles Simeon was a vicar of a church in Cambridge. In fact, he was the vicar, the pastor there for 54 years. Isn't that amazing? From his 20s through into his 70s, he was the vicar there. But it wasn't always easy for Charles Simeon. And um, if you see the next picture here, you'll see, this isn't the particular church he was at, but if you look at those pews, you'll see that they've got doors on the end. And uh, back in, in the old days, you could rent a pew in a church, okay? And uh, I suppose the more money you had, the better pew you had. I'm not sure what the Lord Jesus would think about that. I think it would have been the equivalent of turning over the tables of the money changers. But churches did that to raise money. So you could rent a pew. And if you had lots of money, you could rent the best pew. Um, But these guys at this church of Charles Simeon's, they didn't really want him as vicar. And so in fact, what lots of them did was they locked their pews so that nobody else could get in. And they didn't come to church. And it was like that for at least his first seven years in the church. Okay, they locked the pews, they didn't come, and if you came to church, you had to stand in the aisles, because the pews were locked. And uh, this is what I read yesterday, These were what, this is one of the things he, he wrote. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the aisles, 
almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would, on the whole, be as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times when, without such a reflection, I should have sunk under my burden. That made me feel better. And I thought, oh, it's only going to be a handful there on Sunday. So a double blessing, a double portion for us, yeah? And uh, one, of the, one of the stories that you read about this guy is that um, he, wasn't, he, he wasn't welcomed, he wasn't really respected very much for many of his years of ministry. And he went and spoke one day at another church. And under his preaching at this other church, I mean, it's quite amazing to say this, the vicar of this other church became a Christian. Thinking, oh gosh, he wasn't a Christian beforehand? No, he wasn't. Because in those days, you know, you used to buy, people used to buy their, their right to be a vicar. And uh, so many, many vicars weren't Christians. And this Christian, under Charles Simeon's preaching, when he, Charles Simeon visited his church, he became a Christian. And then this guy's own ministry was transformed. Not only that, but a couple that were at his church, they were saved through this guy's ministry and they bore a son who became one of the best-known Scottish missionaries to China ever known, apparently. And so you read this and you think, gosh, double blessing, not many people there. You know, poor Charles Simeon, he's preaching half the time to an empty church, he's not respected. And yet God brings more than double blessing. Okay, so we can be encouraged, there aren't many of us here, but let's pray for God's double blessing today. Let's do that now, shall we? Father, we thank you that we've encountered your Holy Spirit already this morning. We thank you so much that you sent Jesus, Lord, so that we could be forgiven and restored to you, that your righteous judgment could be satisfied fully. And it wasn't something that Jesus was reluctant to do. It wasn't something that you forced him to do. It was something that you agreed in the Godhead that would happen because you loved us. And we're grateful for that this morning. And as we continue, as we look at your word a little, and then as we worship and take communion at the end, Father, we pray for a double blessing. Lord, we come to you uh, like uh, Jabez in the Old Testament, who said, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my borders, that you'd be with me. So we ask for blessing, for double blessing, uh, so that we might be more effective as your sons and daughters and as your servants, which we are glad to be on a day like today. Amen. So we are looking at um, this this big and significant Christian truth of redemption. We looked a little bit at it last week. We're going to look at it again next week. Then the whole theme of our weekend away is going to be around redemption. And uh, we tried to unpack a little bit what that word meant last week. And we're going to look at our Redeemer a little bit more today. And um, I was trying to think of... of, um, one of the terms that's, dis- that's used to describe redeem, and we looked last week at that one about a kinsman who, if they could afford it, would get you out of debt if you were in their family, or if you'd had to sell your land, they would buy it back for you, or if you'd had to be sold into slavery because you couldn't pay your debts, your kinsman redeemer would pay the debt. But there's another kind of uh, redemption as well, and that's a substitutionary redemption, and that is when I stand in the gap and I take what should be coming to you instead. And Jesus, of course, was our great substitute. 
He stood in the gap and he took what should be mine. And what should be mine is judgment and wrath for my sin and eternal damnation. And he stood in the gap and took all the wrath, the righteous wrath of of God for my sin so that I could be redeemed, so that I would not have to bear that, so that I would be free. And uh, we come to this passage, which is a good one for Easter Sunday, uh, where we look at uh, two disciples who on the day of resurrection are walking out of Jerusalem. And um, it's interesting for us to see what they had expected this Redeemer to do and actually what this Redeemer does when he encounters them. So we're going to look at Luke 24 and it's verses 13 through to 35. So that very day, so this is Resurrection Sunday, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And while they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened and discussing them together, Jesus himself drew near. Isn't that lovely? Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's towards evening and the day's now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord's risen indeed. He's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
peace to you. Isn't that a great passage? It's a great passage. And uh, Pete asked me, just when we were talking and praying just beforehand, have you got a theme for this morning? And do you know what? It's, 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 I, I don't think I have. It's more a bit of a stream of consciousness. I'm sorry about that. But it's just some thoughts on this passage and some particular verses from this passage. But may God bless them to us. So the first one, Jesus himself drew near. We don't know why those two disciples had separated themselves from the others. You know, maybe they just felt they needed a, some space or a break. Maybe they had a particular reason for going back. Maybe they were just disillusioned, actually, with what had happened. We don't know why they'd separated themselves, but they had separated themselves. And, you know, sometimes when disillusionment comes to us, and sometimes it will in our Christian walk, sometimes disillusionment might come to us in the church, the temptation is to walk away. And the wonderful thing we see here about Jesus is he pursues. He pursues. He is a shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He's a shepherd who pursues us. And he pursued these two. We don't know why they left the rest, but they did. Maybe they were disillusioned. But he pursued them. Do you know what? There's a lesson for us there. Firstly, when you feel disillusioned, and the days will come when you feel disillusioned, do I believe this? Do, the world, how can I match up what's happening in the world with what, what this book says, with what I believe? How can I, how can I cope with that mismatch, that disconnect? What about the church that he came to build that's supposed to be glorious? And, and so often there seems to be just division in it, and then not even just division in the church generally, but what about what she said to me last week? No, it was a little bit insensitive, wasn't it? I thought we were supposed to be brothers and sisters here. Well, as I think John Bryars the other day said, the church is more a hospital for sinners than anything else. It is. When disillusionment comes, and sometimes it will in faith, be careful about leaving. Be careful about withdrawing from your brothers and sisters. But you know what? When you belong to him, He'll pursue you when you do anyway. He'll pursue you. Jesus pursues them. Jesus himself drew near. He is a personal redeemer. Okay, it says in uh, Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is talking about the different people that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection. And he says at one point he appeared to 500 when they were all together. And some of them are still, some, most of them are still alive. Few have fallen asleep, but most of them are still alive. Oh, and he appeared to Peter, and he appeared to this one. And then it's interesting, you know, I'd not noticed it really until this morning. I was reading the resurrection passage again. Oh, and then it says, oh, and it, it appeared, he appeared to James. James was Jesus' brother. And James had been very sceptical about Jesus' ministry. Do you remember there's that passage in the New Testament where Mary and the rest of the family come and they say, tell Jesus we want to see him. And at that point, Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers and sisters? Actually, actually, there's something stronger about this than there is even about family tie here. And so we know that James was quite sceptical about Jesus and his ministry. And it's this little line in the New Testament that says, 
or when he appeared to James. Our Redeemer is a personal Redeemer. He appears to us. He draws alongside us. He draws near. And then there's this strange verse that says, but their eyes were kept from recognising him. And that doesn't say that, that they didn't recognise him. So it's not that somehow it was because they were so caught up in their sadness and their discussion that they just didn't recognise. I mean, this was a guy they'd been living cheek by jowl with for two or three years, probably. It says their eyes were kept from seeing him. It's odd, isn't it? Why is that, I wonder? Well, one of the reasons might be this. At that particular moment, it was more important for them to understand some of the truths of what had happened and why it happened. If Jesus had revealed himself right then and there, then probably anything that he then said afterwards would have been straight over their head because there would have been the amazement of having his presence, of having him back. But what happened? We saw you nailed. What, 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 what's this about? What? But actually, Jesus knows that they need, at this particular moment, they need something more than that. They need actually to understand that everything was pointing towards this in the first place. They need to understand some real truths of the faith. Why do they need to understand this? Because Jesus knows that in a few days' time he'll be taken away again. He'll ascend into heaven. So at that particular moment, it's actually not an awareness of his presence that they need. It's to understand some truth from a position of still feeling sad and confused and disillusioned. And, you know, sometimes that can be true for us. We, it, we can be thinking, Lord, where are you? Where, where are you in the middle of this? I can't see you. I can't feel you. I don't sense you. Where are you? And sometimes he hides himself because he has a real truth to teach us and maybe that truth will be best taught when actually we're not aware that he's close. Maybe he's going to take us through a difficult time or a time when we are just less aware of his presence and what does that do? That makes us search and that makes us go deeper and sometimes he will hide himself. That seems a really strange and even a slightly cruel thing for God to do to hide himself but yet we know through the whole of the Old Testament, that God often hid himself. And when he hides himself, it is because he has something really important that he wants to teach us. And so if sometimes you feel in life, I feel, God, I don't know that you're there. I can't sense you. I don't, I don't know that you're with me at the moment, actually. I just, I don't know why this is happening. I don't understand this journey that you're taking me on. You don't seem to be present at all. But he is walking it with you still. Just as he walked with these disciples. He is still there, but he is choosing for your best interests and because he has something better for you, that for this particular moment, your eyes will be hidden so you can't make him out. That's an odd thing, isn't it? That's a strange thing. It's a difficult thing to grasp, but... Do you know what the interesting thing will be? That when we get to the end of this passage, those two disciples say to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us when he was talking to us? When he opened the, those scriptures, weren't our hearts burning within us? 
And actually, I don't know about you, but I look back on times in my life that have been the most difficult times. The moments where maybe I've not known or experienced emotionally a sense of the closeness of God. But I look back and I think, oh God, you were there. Actually, I can, I can trace it. I can see it. I can trace that there was a rainbow in the rain. You know, I can trace it. You were there. I look, but sometimes you won't know it until he's taken you through it and you look back. But here's the confidence that you can have. Even when it feels like he's hiding himself from you, he's still there walking it with you. He's walking the journey with you. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him, but he was there. And then a little later, they are telling him the story of what's happened. Isn't it interesting that Jesus just lets them do that, lets them talk? It's not like Jesus didn't know. What, 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 so what happened then? What happened? Do you know what? Jesus, sometimes he just lets us talk. We read that in the Psalms, don't we? Where just the psalmists pour out their heart to God sometimes. I, you know, God, I just feel like pants. And God allows that. Jesus allows them to just pour out their hearts to him. And uh, it's a lovely thing just to see him giving them space. But this is what they say when they're pouring out their hearts. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We'd hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. See, he wasn't the redeemer they'd expected. Because when they say, we'd hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel, they mean, deliver us from Rome, from the oppressive <coughs> government of Rome. Let your people again be you know, the owners of the land you gave us, the promised land. Redeem us. We'd, we'd hoped that he was going to be the redeemer of Israel. That's what we'd hoped. And he wasn't the redeemer that they'd expected. They didn't see a suffering Messiah as being their redeemer. He's not always the redeemer we expect, but he's always the redeemer that we need. Okay? Sometimes you will expect him to act in a certain way. God, why didn't you, Lord, why didn't you rescue me from that? Why did you allow that? Why have you brought me here? Why am I here? Why, why can't I be there? When I hear the stories about how things are going for others, what, why isn't that happening for us? Why isn't that happening for me? Why aren't you redeeming me? Why aren't you rescuing me? Come on, Lord. He's not always the redeemer that we expect. But he's always the redeemer that we need. And sometimes you won't know how he's redeemed you from a circumstance or situation till afterwards. And then you'll look back and say, oh God, do you know what, thank you. I think now of the things that a few years ago I wanted in my life. I had a period when I was away from God and there were things in life that I really wanted. And there were times when although I was away from God, I was angry with him and saying, why aren't you giving me that? It's no more than everybody else gets. Why can't I have that? I was angry with God. I now look back and I think, oh God, thank goodness you didn't redeem me in that way. Thank goodness that you didn't give me what I wanted at the time. Thank goodness that you've redeemed me in the way you have. It wasn't the redemption that I expected, but oh boy, was it the redemption that I needed when you rescued me, when you brought me back to yourself, when 
you showed me that all that stuff I was pursuing was just nonsense and rubbish. Oh, God, thank you. You weren't the redeemer I was expecting, but, boy, you were the redeemer that I need. Jesus will always be for us the redeemer that we need, but he might not be the redeemer that we expect in the moment. (coughs) And then he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. And uh, bear in mind that at this moment, they still don't know this is Jesus, okay? So this is some stranger who's muscled in on their conversation is now calling them foolish, okay? But there's something about the disciples here which I think needs commending. They're not like donkeys, okay? They're not like donkeys at this point. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's a, a great passage in one of the Psalms... And it says this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Do you know what? These two disciples, they could have reacted when Jesus said, Oh, foolish ones. At that point, they could have said, You know nothing. You weren't there. You didn't even know what happened in Jerusalem. Do you know what? Forget it. We're not even going to listen to you. But there's something in these two disciples who at this particular time, they decide that they're going to listen. And they don't despise what's said. Actually, they're not like donkeys who won't, you know, stubbornly resist. They're yielding. They're yielding. And sometimes, let me tell you this, Jesus will need to say to you and to me, oh foolish ones, oh foolish ones, are you, am I, are we too strong for God to say to us, oh foolish ones, slow of heart, slow of thinking. If we are, sometimes we can forfeit the grace that he's trying to bring us by bringing correction. And he will bring correction sometimes through just our reading of the Bible, sometimes that will correct us, or there'll just be that moment of conscience and you think, oh yes, Lord, I'm so sorry I said that, I just shouldn't have done. Or it will be through your brother or sister. Now hopefully they won't say to you, oh foolish one, I mean I've thought that about John a number of times, I've never said it to him. I haven't really. Um, but, but if I were to, if I were to say to John, John, I'm, I'm just not sure that, that you were wise there. How's he going to take it? Is he going to react against me? Is he going to forfeit the grace that could be his if the Lord happens to use me, if I bring it gently to him? Do you know, sometimes... Sometimes we need to bring those words to one another very gently and very sensitively. We're not the Lord. So we don't have permission to go and say, foolish one. We're not the Lord. But sometimes he uses us to just uncover where perhaps we've been foolish. How will we respond to that? How will we respond when the Lord says, foolish ones? Will we react? 
Are we too strong for him to say that to? Will we become offended? Or will we act actually like these two disciples did? They, they yielded. They weren't like the donkey that needs a, brit, a, a bridle and a bit, otherwise it won't come. They came willingly, they listened, they yielded. Do you know, sometimes the Lord will say things to us for our best and our good that are not that easy to hear. Will you yield when he does? It's for your good. Yield to him. Even if he says, oh, foolish ones, do you know what? He says that with love to you. He doesn't say it with anger or recrimination or judgment because he's taken the judgment bit. He says it to you with love. Oh, foolish one. Come on, let me open up the truth to you. Will you be brave enough to yield when he does? And he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. One of the things that I've loved in the last few months is I've been reading through the Old Testament and actually I've just read it in a different way than I've ever read it before. You know when you're doing your daily readings or perhaps every, every couple of days maybe or once a week you manage to read your Bible a little bit whenever it is for you, whenever you do it. And, uh, and, and sometimes you'll linger, won't you? You know, you'll read it and you'll linger over a couple of verses because, you know, the Bible is rich and it's like an onion and you peel a layer off and, oh, gosh, there's another one, my goodness. And actually, that, I haven't done it that way this year. I've read, been reading through the Old Testament. I've been reading through it quite quickly. I've been reading sort of four or five chapters at a go just to get it into me. And one of the things through doing that that I've just picked up is how often the Old Testament just all points towards Jesus. It all points towards him. And there's this lovely quote from a, um, a well-known um, Bible commentator from, uh, from back in the days of yore called Matthew Henry. He says this, you cannot go far in any part of scripture, but you meet with something that has reference to Christ, some prophecy, some promise, some prayer, some type. In other words, someone who reminds you in some way of Jesus. For he is the true treasure in the field of the Old Testament. A golden thread of gospel grace runs through the whole web of the Old Testament. It's lovely, isn't it? And I've just discovered that. I recommend it to you. Sometimes read quick and see how many times you can encounter, oh, that sounds like Jesus. Oh, that's, that points to, oh my goodness, that sounds a bit like, so many times. He opens up their eyes so that they could see it. But to do you know what? It, that's why we do this as well, because in the book of Ephesians, Paul says it was him who gave to the church, and then he gives that whole list of apostles, prophets, pastor teachers, pastor shepherds, shepherd teachers. And God said, I'm going to give you shepherds after my own heart who will teach and unpack the Bible to you, unpack my word to you. And hopefully sometimes when that happens, there are little nuggets that, oh, I burn within us. Didn't our hearts burn within us when that truth came? Jesus opens up the scriptures and now he does that through his Holy Spirit. So one of the things that I do, and I recommend it to you, is I don't spend long praying before I read my Bible now, but I do just say, Father, speak to me today. Father, show me something today. And then I start reading. And then I'll pray off the back of that reading. 
or sometimes during it. But always ask God. It's a quick ask. God, today, like Jesus unpacked the scriptures so that their hearts burnt within them, Holy Spirit, who you've sent, so that I don't have to wait for somehow Jesus to appear, but actually you've sent your spirit. Oh, Lord, when I open up the word today, let it burn within me. He interprets the scriptures to us. He's a redeemer who makes himself known. And then finally, he acted as if he were going further. And they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, stay with us. When it says that he acted as if he were going further, it doesn't mean that he was somehow pretending and that if they hadn't said, stay with us, he would have just sort of watched for a little while and thought, okay, they're not going to ask, I better go back then. It means that he was going to go further. He acted as if he was going to go further. And they grabbed him and they urged him to stay. Do you know, sometimes there are moments and God brings us to a moment. And at that moment, we have to do the Jacob bit, I won't let go until you bless me. God, I'm not going to let go of this. Sometimes God will bring you and me to a moment. And it will be a moment where he may walk on. But we have to grab him at that moment. We have to say, God, I I sense that you are bringing me to one of those moments. And I know that I have a choice here. I have a choice. I could say, God, yes. (laughs) Lord, whatever it is, yes. Yeah, I'm going to hold on to you, Father, in this. Lord Jesus, yes. Or I can make the choice to let the Lord move on. And sometimes he'll do that because he doesn't force himself on us. Yes, he pursues us. Yes, his sheep know his voice. So if you're his sheep, you know his voice. But there's something about grabbing hold of him in the moment when you know that he could walk on. He's sort of giving you that that choice. Do you want this? Are you going to obey me in this? Grab hold of him when those moments come. Submit. Surrender. Don't be like the ox and don't be like the mule that needs a bridle and a bit. Yield. Grab hold. And finally, their eyes were opened and they recognised him. Suddenly they realised that this Redeemer is alive. And I'll finish with this story, which is a story of a a man called Maximilian Kolbe. I don't know if you've heard of him. Maximilian Kolbe was a Catholic priest and he was alive during the Second World War. He was Polish. And Maximilian Kolbe and some of his brothers in the monastery where he lived hid many, many Jews from the Nazis during the Second World War. And in 1941, um, the Nazis discovered that they were hiding Jews and Maximilian Kolbe was sent to the infamous death camp of Auschwitz in Poland. And uh, while he was there in August 1941, um, some prisoners in Auschwitz, the Nazis thought they'd escaped. They did the head count and they found that some prisoners had escaped. And their way of dealing with that was always, when a prisoner escaped or was felt to have escaped, was that they would execute 10 
other prisoners for that. And so they choose 10 prisoners to execute. And they choose this man, uh, and I can't quite pronounce his name, but let's say Franciszek Zhivanovic. That'll do. And they they choose him uh, as one of the 10, and he stands up in the line of 10, and he cries out. He says, "I've I've got a wife and children. And Maximilian Kolbe, who's standing with the crowd, steps forward and says, I'll take his place. I'll take his place. And uh, that was a very rare thing for the commandant to accept. But in this moment, the commandant, perhaps because Maximilian Kolbe was older, so of less use to the Nazis, he accepts it. And so Maximilian Kolbe steps forward and Franczek Zhivanovich is able to go back into the line again. And so with the nine other prisoners, uh, Maximilian Kolbe is executed, and it was a painful and long-winded execution. It was basically starvation. And uh, so they were shut in a room, and they were starved to death. And uh, this is what Franczek Zhivanovich says afterwards. I could only thank him with my eyes, I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some dream? I was put back into my place in the line without having had time to say anything to Maximilian Kolbe. I was saved, and I owe him the fact that I could tell you all this. And Maximilian um, and um, Franciszek Jovanovic never had the chance of, of even thanking Maximilian Kolbe. And uh, he says, actually, in some of the things he writes afterwards, that he felt huge sense of, of, of responsibility and guilt uh, for some years afterwards because of what this guy had done for him. He was never able to thank him. And his redeemer died. Do you know what? Our Redeemer lives. Our Redeemer, like Pete prayed earlier, it wasn't the end. Our Redeemer wasn't a stranger. Our Redeemer is our friend. Greater love has no man than this. And he lays down his life for his friend. He looks at you and says, friend, I laid down my life for you. But not only that, I'm I'm risen. And now... I'm a redeemer who's alive and I'll walk this walk with you. I didn't just do that. I now will walk this walk with you. Their eyes were opened. They saw him. And uh, that is true for us too on a day like today. So I'm going to get the guys to come back up. We're going to just sing uh, a song and then uh, come and take communion. It's a good day to take communion. Do you know what? When... uh, Jesus broke the bread for those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Their eyes were opened. So let's ask as we take communion that he will open our eyes again to see what a saviour he is and what a redeemer we have. And uh, so we've got communion at the front. And uh, come up and take it when you're ready as we sing our last song. Then I'll get Pete to pray to close the meeting. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. 
You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.